Please, if you would, take out your Bibles and open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we resume our study of this pastoral epistle this morning. As you know, when we've been meeting, aside from our communion uh, service, that uh, we've been working our way through this first letter of Timothy. As you well know, there are two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, his disciple and his protege in the faith. Um, We are looking at the first one, and we've been making our way through, finishing up chapter 2, the last time we were here and looking at Timothy. And as as I said then, I would just reiterate now, we're in a section of Timothy where Timothy is addressing things specific to the church or specifically to how worship functions. And so, yes, what I'm telling you is, is that one of the issues of worship in the church is qualifications for overseers and qualifications for, de- uh, for deacons. Uh, we're just going to be looking at the qualifications for overseers this morning. We'll look at the deacons the next time, Lord willing. But that's vital to the worship of the church. How you have uh, the structure of the servants within the church is going to affect the way that worship works. And so that's why choosing elders and overseers to serve uh, and having their character right, which is what Paul is talking about here, is vital to the worship of the church because, as we should know, but we should well know by now, that in any sort of institution like this, like the church, the church will eventually reflect its leadership because the leadership, the the men in charge or the men who are leading are going to have the primary influence in the church. And so you want men who are under the influence of the Holy Spirit, who are grounded in the Word, who are committed to truth and committed to the Word of God wholesale to be the leaders, because that will ultimately shape how the church goes. Now, I want to I give a caveat here. Obviously, I know the church is the bride of Christ and is infused with the Holy Spirit. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the health and growth of a church depend primarily on men. But what I am saying is for a church to remain healthy and growing and walking under the influence or walking by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, you want men leading who are walking by the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's just the way that it works. And that's what Paul's laying out for us this morning. He's giving us the essentials that we need so that we can think through who should be serving as elder in God's church. And that's exactly the question he answers this morning. So without further delay, let's turn our attention to the Scriptures now. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So as the reading of God's Word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, your Word is before us, and we commit ourselves to it now. Oh, Father, use the Word by the power of the Spirit to dig deeply into our hearts that we might be shaped by truth 
and nothing else. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. I don't know, it's an older book, maybe some of you have read uh, Philip Keller's old book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. Uh, I read that book years ago and found it to be really interesting, a neat book to read through to think about uh, biblical eldering, biblical shepherding from the vantage point of an actual shepherd and how he looked at broke down Psalm 23. Well, if you've read it, you see how detailed shepherding actually is. There are a lot of work goes into shepherding, a lot, a lots of time and commitment. Um, he shows the painstaking details uh, that a shepherd has to do and his commitment to care for the sheep. I mean, a shepherd has to be attentive, very attentive. He's got to be able to spot dangers for his sheep and help keep them safe. He's got to be able to catch pests and parasites before they actually harm the sheep. I mean, in one instance, this is going to be gross, but this is the work of a shepherd. They get, the sheep get these special parasites that climb up into their nasal cavities, and a, share, and a shepherd is often having to dig up in their nostrils to clean it out to make sure that bacteria from these parasites can't… Yeah, it's gross. It, but that's the commitment of a shepherd. He's got to look out for predators to make sure that he's keeping his sheep safe from wolves or coyotes or bear or any other type of thing that might naturally prey on sheep. So when we think about that, when we think about what an actual shepherd does, the, the one word that comes to mind is attentive. It has to be attentive, and that leads to a sincere commitment to the sheep in his charge. I can't think of a better description for elders than that, that we commit to care. We commit to other things in our lives that help enable elders to do their duty. That's what Paul's point is here. He's not only laying out, he's not only laying out their character, he's, he's giving us a picture of a man who's going to be sincere in his call to serve a local church, who's going to be bold, who's going to be loving, who's going to be humble, and who's going to be attentive, who's going to be committed. So we know from Acts 20, you don't have to turn there, that Paul was in Ephesus, and Ephesus had an established church with elders, because we know that Paul spoke to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20. And so this is not new instruction. This really what Paul is doing here is Paul is reminding Timothy of the truth of what these men should look like. So this is not something new for the church at Ephesus. The elders were already aware, as Paul had instituted elders, of what his expectations were. So Paul is now reminding Timothy, hey, remember this, as we are calling elders into service, this is what they need to look like. So it's no surprise, when you see the structure of this, it should not be surprising to us that God has structure for the character and calling of the men who are called to shepherd. One word aptly sums up, when you read that paragraph and you think through, what is one word? If we could sum that whole paragraph down, Paul, what should elders be? Elders should be men of holiness, a holiness that is evident to other people. And when, I, and when you say, well, Brad, everybody should be holy, yeah, they should, but we should see a certain amount of holiness that is evident and men who are called to serve in this way. That's what these seven verses are driving at, that elders are to be holy men, holy men who reflect the character of God. Now, I need to clarify, elders are not infallible men. 
Elders make mistakes just like everybody else. Elders have to walk in repentance just like everybody else. And so if Paul were trying to tell us, hey, elders have to be infallible, that would be inconsistent with the whole counsel of Scripture because we know that everybody sins. So that's not Paul's point. They're not infallible. They're not. We're not. I'm an elder. We're not infallible. But on the flip side of that, godliness should be evident. Godliness should be clear. We should be able to clearly see godliness in the lives of our elders. And all should aspire to the character traits that Paul lists here because they do display the character of Christ. And so we need to be clear that Paul is telling Timothy, one of the things we need to be clear on is Paul is telling Timothy, the men who are, are going to be elders shouldn't aspire to these things. They should be that. So when you're already looking for a man to be an elder in a church, he should already possess these things because basically this is just good old-fashioned godliness and holiness. Because everybody should aspire to have a character that reflects Christ. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning, and it's this, that the prerequisite for authority in the church is personal holiness. The prerequisite for authority in the church is personal holiness. So what we're getting here, we're getting to look at, we're getting insight into what should biblical shepherds look like? What is, what is their character? What is their calling? What are their abilities? And when we think about it again, holiness needs to be the primary mark of the men who oversee God's people. Perhaps you're familiar with the name Robert Murray McShane. He was a, a pastor in Scotland in the 19th century. He died very young. He died just before his 30th birthday. But he was a man of great wisdom and insights. One time he is quoted as saying, the greatest need of my people and, and understand this. This is coming to what does, what does the church need from their pastor? That's what he's talking about. Obviously, the greatest need of the people of God is Jesus Christ. So in this context of what does my church really need? What is the greatest need of my church from me as an elder in this church? He says, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. That is, he thought of himself as an elder and pastor in God's church, that one of the best things he could do for the people that he was called to shepherd was to be holy before them and with them and among them. And so when we think about that, I think that there's a great deal of wisdom in that, that what you need from us as, as elders to this church is personal holiness, all under the ministry of Christ. Well, when we, he starts here, he says, the saying is trustworthy. This is the second time we've seen this in this book, and that's that the saying, the uh, uh, saying is uh, trustworthy, the faithful word formula. All he's saying is it's right, it's trustworthy, and it most likely is something that's already been established. In other words, Paul is not writing it for the first time here. It's most likely that he's telling, them, he's telling Timothy something he would already heard, but he's saying, hey, remember this saying, this is true, this is right, this is good. And then he moves on. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, literally, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so one of the questions we have of the text we want to ask right off the bat, you've heard me say shepherd, you've heard me say elder, and you've heard me say overseer. And the Bible uses all three. Is there any fundamental difference between those three words? Not, not essentially, no. When we think about an elder, an elder is one who oversees and shepherds the flock. When we think about an overseer who oversees and shepherds the flock, he is also an elder. When we think about a shepherd, he is overseeing the flock in the office of elder. 
So Paul will use these three words interchangeably, primarily uh, uh, elder and overseer. Shepherd is one that comes in some of the other epistles. And so we were looking at a word that has no difference. So you're going to hear me this morning use overseer and elder interchangeably. Paul calls this a noble task. Why? Why? What's noble? Why is it literally in the, uh, in the Greek text? It says it's a good work. Now, what makes this a good work is, A, it's commissioned by God. So we're called, elders are called in the name of God to serve a local body. That's exactly what we're called to do, in the name of God and for God's glory to serve in a local body. So that's one of the things that makes it a good work. But the, the human aspect of this, what makes it a good work is it's good for the body when it's done right when it's done healthily, if that's a word, uh, and when it's executed with faithfulness. It becomes a good gift to the local body of Christ to have godly men who are leading in a God-honoring way who are ultimately trying to lead a congregation in a Godward direction. That then, it becomes a beautiful work, in fact, a great work, a necessary work. Now, I'll, being an elder is difficult. It's a difficult task. It's a lot of responsibility, and the things that elders have to contemplate and deal with through prayer and discussion, it is a hard task, but it's a beautiful task. It's a beautiful task when, through faithfulness, service to the local body by means of the Word of God are executed by faithful men. So pray for your elders. Pray for them often. Don't let a, don't let a week go by without praying for your elders, men who need constantly the, to be infused by the strength and power of the Holy Spirit to walk rightly and to lead rightly. Now, Paul sets in, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, and then he leads into the paragraph. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, I'm going to stop right there, or maybe you have a translation that says blameless. Either, either translation works. Above reproach, blameless are getting at the same thing. So Paul is giving us here the overarching principle of eldership. The overall mark is a man of integrity who is above reproach. That is what an elder should be. And we could say uh, a man, therefore an overseer, must be above reproach, full stop. We could stop right there and then say, and it looks like this. And he spends the rest of this paragraph fleshing out what it looks like to be above reproach. This is not too dissimilar from in Galatians 5, when we get the fruit of the Spirit, notice it's singular. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And the rest of those fruits are outworking of love. The man who is an elder, an overseer, is above reproach. And the rest of this is an outworking of what that looks like, how it's fleshed out. And so he says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And I'm going to stop right there. It's not coincidental, and it should not be lost on us, that right after he talks about the blamelessness or the man being above, above reproach, he immediately starts with the marriage. He immediately starts with his most intimate relationship in the home. Now, when he talks, when he said there is debate in terms of this simple phrase, lots of debate. What does it mean? What does it not mean? What is Paul commanding? What is Paul not commanding? Now, I probably won't tackle everything, but I do want to tackle a few things. Some have thought from this particular passage right here, the husband of one wife is an, an implicit command, an implicit command that if you are to be an elder, you have to be married. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. That's not his point. He's not demanding 
that elders be married. In fact, he counsels people not to marry if they can stand it so that they can be more committed to the task of the church. So, we don't, we don't want to say that he's commanding marriage. But if he is, if he is married, this is instruction for the elder, the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man or a man of one woman. That also is under debate. Because is it, are we saying that he can only be married once forever and always and that's it, and if there's another marriage, he can never be an elder? Are we saying that, no, Paul was dealing with the issue of polygamy in the ancient culture, and he's just saying, hey, man, you can't have multiple wives. Or was he simply saying, hey, you have one wife, and to be a qualified elder, you've got to be faithful to her. Well, I'm going to go with option C, and I'm going to tell you why. The reason I don't think Paul is speaking to polygamy here is polygamous practice was not prevalent in the ancient and the early Christian church. It was not something that we read about in history. So Paul is not having to warn Christian elders who've imbibed a biblical worldview so far as they had it at that time against polygamy because it was not, at least in the history that we have, we have very little record of it. So it seems clear to me that Paul is not dealing with that. Paul is also not making a statement here on marriage and divorce. He deals with that later. So he's not introducing into this and trying to have this implicit idea of how many times he's been married versus how many times he's not. Was he widowed? Did his wife commit adultery on him? Is that why the marriage dissolved? None of that goes into this right here. He has those discussions in other epistles, so I'm not saying Paul never addresses it, but the point here is that if the elder has a wife is he faithful to her? And the reason I think that that's correct is because faithfulness is a theme throughout the pastoral epistles. He calls men to be faithful. He calls Timothy to be faithful, appoint faithful men. And it's, it's kind of, it goes along, right along with Paul's trajectory on this, that if the man is married, he has a wife, he should be faithful to his wife, period. And his, his quality will be shown in how he lives with and treats his wife. So if we can take it that that's just a very straightforward, a one-woman man, that the woman he has, is he's faithful to her. And then he builds on this. So he's established, he's above reproach, and it first looks like he's above reproach in, in his home. He lives with his wife in an understanding way. He loves her well. He leads her well. He walks with her well. And then Paul spends the rest of verses 2 and 3 talking about what he is versus what he's not. And it's actually pretty neat how these things correspond together. So if you follow verses 2 and 3, the next thing after uh, the husband of one wife, Paul says, sober-minded. So he's sober-minded, and if you look down at verse 3, not a drunkard. This is what he is. He is sober-minded, and he's not a drunkard. That means he values clear thinking. He takes temperance seriously. He's not a man of indulgence. Now, when people hear sober-minded, so often they think he's somber. And that doesn't mean somber either. It just means that he's aware, that he knows how to engage those around him, and he comes at it with a, with a clear line of thought. He doesn't operate from a state of confusion. He lives for, to have a mind of clarity. So that's one. He's sober-minded, not a drunkard. He's self-controlled, not violent in verse 3, but gentle. Self-controlled, one of the fruits of the Spirit. So he's not violent, he's gentle. In other words, his life is God-honoring. He seeks to imitate the character of Christ. 
He keeps his habits under control. He keeps his mind under control. He keeps his body under control. And when those things stray, he, he walks in repentance. But he's not violent, man. He's not known for his temper. He's not known because he's angry. There used to be this, uh, there used to be this doctor in Dothan that we knew and who was very vocal about his Christian faith. And it was also known throughout the city that nobody wanted to work with him because he was, had such outbursts of anger all the time. And we need to understand that what Paul is saying was in an elder, that is incongruent, self-controlled, not given to fits of rage and violence. But his life is God-honoring. It says that he is respectable. And conversely, in verse 3, not quarrelsome. He's a man of humility, grace, and dignity. He's not looking for a fight. He's not looking to be cantankerous. He's not looking to be overly critical. He's respectable. He carries himself well. He's a, that means he's approachable. He's not harsh or aggressive. He's kind. Now, you can be kind and be firm. You can be kind and be bold. But if you're going to be bold and firm, be kind. It says that he is hospitable. Conversely, not a lover of money or literally not covetous. He's generous. He opens his home. He opens his table. Now, this would have been particularly poignant in Paul's day because you think about contextually. What you have is the inns that people could use were not safe places. You were just as likely to be robbed or killed as an inn as you were in the street. And in times of persecution and Christians were having to hide or flee, he was encouraging elders need to be leading the way in hospitality. You need to be the first ones opening up your doors to people who are hurting and broken or who are in need. That's Paul's point, and that truth still remains. Elders should be hospitable people. They should be hospitable men. They should be men who are leading by example in hospitality. And then Paul gets his only, his only mark about uh, gifting, that he's able to teach. That he's able to teach. And what that means is not that does every elder have to be the most dynamic speaker in the world? No. In fact, it would be completely proper if they weren't dynamic at all. Doesn't di di dynamic doesn't matter. What does matter, however, is can he understand and clearly communicate the Scriptures? According to Paul, that needs to be present in an elder. He needs to be able to communicate God's truth. So it's not about dynamic. It's about ability. It's about being able and it's also about being willing. Men who are willing to imbibe the truth and communicate it clearly. That is one of the reasons here at the chapel every so often you will see our elders preach. We think that's important. We think it's important for the congregation to see them in that role. And it's important for them to do it because as elders in a biblical way, they are supposed to be able to teach. And so that is an important mark as well. Now, he's talked about being the husband of one wife, how things go in the home. Then he transitions to character that should be present in that husband and things that should not be as both the husband and an elder. Now, he comes back around to his home. In verse 4, he begins to talk about his parenting. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So when we think about the home of an elder, one of the first things we have to say about it, according to what Paul says here, it must be a place of honor, 
It must be a place of obedience. It must be a place of submission. That's kind of what Paul is driving at here. He uses the term well-managed, like, or managed well, so we'll call it well-managed. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, as a general rule, the way Paul lays it out here is that children should show respect to their parents. I mean, it should be clear that the children of an elder respect him and that generally they obey. Now, Brad, why do you say generally? Because nobody's going to obey perfectly, right? I mean, there, there are times where, you know, my children don't obey perfectly. That may shock you, uh, but they don't. They're not perfect. Uh, neither am I, for that matter. Um, and so what Paul is saying is not absolute obedience, but generally they obey. They're respectful and that they're open to instruction. I mean, that's what part of the idea here when he says uh, submissive there. We've talked about this for submission, to come under the mission of, that children are visibly willing to come under the mission of their parents and follow them. That's one of the primary markers. And it's interesting that Paul does this because he's kind of driving at a point. I'll, I'll come back around to this in just a second. But the idea being, if, if, if you're supposed to have authority in a church and you can't even teach general submissiveness in your home, you have no business being an elder. It really, what, what you're looking at here is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Or what Jesus would say, he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. He who is not faithful with little will not be faithful with much. That's exactly the point Paul is making here. That if he... he, he He's not, um, he's, not, he's not demanding perfection. He's just talking about a general way, approach to life. But I love that he uses the word here, dignity, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. He does that to talk about the demeanor of the father, who is the elder. Is he unnecessarily harsh? Is he abrasive? You know, not can he be stern when he has to be. Of course, that's expected. But is he unapproachable? Do children fear him or do they respect him? That's a good distinction. Uh, men, we don't want to be feared. I mean, maybe sometimes we do. Um, we shouldn't want to be feared. Respect is a far greater thing because respect is bred from trust and love. Fear does not change a heart. It may, it, may, it may demand compliance for a time, but it will not work on the heart. So Paul says with dignity, be men who honor Christ in your home. Now here's what I want to say too, and I feel like this caveat is necessary. Because we live in, a, we live in times where we could easily be judgmental with verses like this. I want you to hear me say, not all bad behavior comes from bad parenting. Sometimes you can be a great parent and the child can just go awry. And the reason that is true is because children have wills, just like you. And sometimes they give in to rebellion. Paul is making no comment about that here. He's just saying if that is happening in your home, your attention needs to be given to your child and not to the church. That's Paul's point. That's the underlying implicit point, that if your child has gone off the rails and it, is, and it happens, and we're making no judgment on that, at least assuming you've tried to do everything that you can, then at that point, we step back from office and say, I'm going to commit to my child. That's Paul's point. Because an out-of-control house of an overseer 
should not, he won't have time to do the office of the church. He needs to commit his time to his child. And that's Paul's, that's, that's the primary point. And as I said a moment ago, Paul says it here, if he can't manage a home, he's not going to be able to manage a church. This is where we have to make the wise choices with regards to how we choose elders. So often, in, our, in, our, in the context of America, I can't speak outside of it, you see it in churches where men are chosen because they're successful, because they have a certain amount of clout in society, because they possess a certain amount of power, or because they're wealthy and proven to be good businessmen. And we, we evaluate them on everything except this. Now, praise God, at the chapel, we take this paragraph very seriously. And to the best of our ability, we seek to be men elders. Every elder I've led would seek to be elders who embody this. Do we do it perfectly? No. I foremost. But the heart is not about what we do outside here in our businesses, but are we men of God? Is he a man of God? That's what we have to ask. That is the question that has to be answered. Because it doesn't matter how successful, how rich, how powerful, how wealthy you are. If your house is in tumult, we've got bigger problems. And we've got a much bigger target. And again, Paul is not trying to be harsh or judgmental. He's just making the simple point here that this is a good test for whether a man should be an elder or not. He, he goes on from the home, and he addresses two more things. He says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So he's not newly converted. Why? Because newly converted people, and I'm using the word ignorance here, and it's technical. I'm not trying to be, we, we, it's now derogatory to ever use that word, and actually it, it doesn't always mean bad. A new convert is largely ignorant because he has not had enough time in Scripture and an experience in the church to learn and grow and develop some wisdom. And so when you have that ignorance, ignorance always, or not always, ignorance as a general rule can lead easily to arrogance, and ignorance and arrogance are a bad combination. And Paul says we want to avoid the man who's not learned yet, who's still dealing with ignorance, because he might come, become puffed up thinking, I've, I've risen to this station and be a detriment to the church. In fact, Paul gives a very stern warning, puffed up with conceit, and this is a promise, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Interesting that Paul is equating pride here with instant judgment, the condemnation of the devil, so that we understand we want to be men of humility again, and he's saying the propensity for new converts to go toward pride is such that don't put them in that position. Guard their hearts for them, because when we think about the role of elder, it's maturity and wisdom that's needed in the men who lead us. Obviously, they need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They need to be men of maturity who can think soundly, who's got some experience in their lives. Again, not perfect men, not men who always make the best decision ever, but men who have the tools because they have the experience and the learning to think through, think through issues that come across our table. So Paul says, avoid the recent convert. And so often um, when you see disasters, especially in elder teams or elder boards or, or whatever we call them, it's often because either they've ignored the character qualities or they've let somebody who had no business being in that position because of their lack of experience and 
maybe the newness of their conversion. He rounds this list out with this. He says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Literally, in the Greek, it says that he must be thought of by the outsiders. Now, why does Paul definitize it there? Well, because he's making a point about who the outsiders are. It's the outsiders, those who are not believing, those who are in the world who do not embrace his faith. And literally what he's telling him is that the elder should be above accusation from the people around him who don't share his faith, that his integrity, his honor should be such that he, he, can, he can not even stand accused by those around him. And so what that means is, is he brings no disrepute to the church of God. When I was still in the PCA, uh, there, there's a process that you go through in the Presbyterian Church of America if you're, if you're pursuing ministry, and, and one of the first things you have to do is it's called come under care of the presbytery. The presbytery was the local presbytery of elders who oversaw your training, and I was coming under care in presbytery, and the elders decided I should go to seminary, and I was starting this process. We stood on the floor of presbytery, and one of the men there very, very sternly, not stern as in mean, just very soberly, lectured us about not plagiarizing our sermons. You don't plagiarize your sermons, men. This is God has called you to a noble task. He actually used that word. And you're going to be preaching pastors. And if you're going to be faithful men, don't give in to the temptation to plagiarize because I don't want you to bring disrepute onto God's church. This man was a teaching elder in the PCA. About five years later, it comes out he'd been plagiarizing his sermons for 10 years preaching other people's sermons for 10 years, and I'll never forget thinking, brother, you challenged us to bring no disrepute on the church, and that's exactly what you did. I'm not trying to kick a man while he's down, because he was, I mean, he was obviously fired and, and uh, censured by the presbytery, brought under discipline and all, but he failed to take his own advice to bring no disrepute to the church. So Paul is telling an elder, have such a testimony with people outside the church that you bring no disrepute to the church, that people know you as an honest man, as a dignified man, as a man of integrity, and as a man whose word is his word, who's not wishy-washy, who is faithful, who's attentive, who's committed, who loves well. And you can see it the way that he loves his wife and his children who makes wise decisions because you can see patterns in his own life where he tries to follow biblical principles and who's committed to the church of God. When we think about holiness, as I use it as an apt word to sum this up, when we think about being holy, Paul is telling the elder to be well thought of so that he doesn't get, fall into disgrace or caught into a snare of the devil. Holiness helps us to avoid disgrace and the snare of the devil. When we seek to walk in a holy way before the Lord, what we're doing is we're seeking to embody the Word of God and how we live. And so all these character qualities are not just great for elders. They're great for anybody. We all should embody this to some degree because this is generally saying people who are holy and godly. Elders have to be Christ-centered men who seek holiness. They must be. Now, that may seem rather obvious to say, well, of course, Brad, that, that's true. But Paul had to remind the church at Ephesus that this needed to be. 
Many of our churches in our world need to be reminded that this is that elders should be men of holiness at the basic level. Churches run best when they're structured the way that God has designed, and overseers must be men of character more than anything else. <laughs> Let it be said that we had very few gifts but high character, and that would be a blessing from the Lord. Now, thankfully, we have gifts here, but character should be the reigning principle. Overseers must be men of character. God is not impressed by a man's wealth, by a man's status, or a man's station in life. Rather, God desires honorable men who will live in submission to Him and lead others well. Elders are, not, are, are, to, be, are to be godly men, are to be godly men. They're to be faithful husbands and fathers if they're married and have children. They're to be honest men who embody the character of Christ. Indeed, these men should be marked by holiness. And beloved, when there's failure there, elders should lead the way in repentance. So elders should be leading people constantly to the throne of grace by their example and by their direct leadership. That's the elders that we need. That's the elders that Scripture prescribes. That's the elders that will honor God. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this paragraph and its clarity. It gives us a real sense of what You expect in Your church. God, however we, we look at this, we know that You are telling us that we are, to be, we are to have elders over us who embody these character traits. I'm so grateful for the elders at the chapel. I'm so grateful for the men that I labor with and serve with in their lives, their lives of godliness, their faithfulness in their homes, their commitment to Scripture, their commitment to You. God, continue to bless this church with faithful elders. Continue to give us eyes to see as we think about elders who will serve and help us to choose according to Your Word and not according to cultural standards. Father, we give this to You and we ask You to continue to lead us on. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.